Hello, this is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. On today's episode, we are changing things up. I'm sharing a conversation I had this summer with Michael Ming and Robert Hefner as part of a series of webcasts hosted by the University of Oklahoma Energy Institute at the Michael F. Price College of Business. It was really fun to take off my interviewing hat and talk as the interviewee about the generational transition in in energy. Our two hosts were interesting and engaging, and we had a lot of fun. To learn more about our research, previous podcasts, and our work at Adamantine, please visit our website at energythinks.com. And now I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael and Robert. Well, welcome everyone to the Price College of Business Energy Institute webcast series on energy. And today we have the special privilege of having Tisha Schuler the president and founder of Adamantine Energy in Colorado. And Tisha, thank you so much for, for joining us. We, we have a number of transitions going on right now. So there's a grand energy transition, there's social transition, there's environmental transition, there's political transition. Uh, but at the root of a lot of it, is, is a generational transition going back from the greatest generation, the World War II generation into the baby boomers who had so much influence on the economy and the world today. But being a baby boomer, we're starting to age out. And you have written so much on this topic, we just thought it was very timely that we could have you on and give advice both to those executives in industry today that might be tone deaf or might not be hearing the right messages and the things they should be recognizing. And also for the, the up and coming leaders in the millennial generation and, and, and others. Uh, but again, thank you for joining us today. And for those who don't know Tisha, she founded Adamantine after five years as the CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. And in, in sort of a unexpected way became the voice for hydraulic fracturing on the front range of the Rockies. And if you haven't followed the, this social transition in the state of Colorado, it's an interesting one. She wrote a book about that. I'll give a little plug for that. I've read it, Accidentally Adamant. And you can experience her journey uh, through this bizarre world of environmental opposition in an increasingly blue state that had a significant tradition in oil and gas and still does. Tish is a fellow Stanford Cardinal. We've worked together uh, for a number of years on a number of fun projects. So uh, Tisha, welcome. It's great to get a reason to get together and I'm looking forward to uh, having our audience hear your words of wisdom. Also have on the call Robert Hefner V. Robert comes from a long history, family history in oil and gas. He's a OU Price graduate. He's the prototypical entrepreneur, currently has his own company, Hefner Energy. He's passionate about energy, uh, especially trying to make sense of this grand transition on a number of fronts. Robert and I have developed a relationship over the last few years. It's been fun, lots of connections there. Um, but I always say about the millennials, I call them my millennials because I rely on them heavily to keep me from becoming tone deaf. And, and they just have an intuition and a perspective that has been in or, uh, exceptionally valuable to, to me as, as a boomer. Uh, and they just see the world differently. Tisha, we'd really uh, like to get going. And you 
write a series in your crystal ball series, but a, a great statement, both of these things are true, where you contrast sort of immediate needs with long-term needs, more energy, less carbon, protect the balance sheet, but don't forget your employees. Um, generate returns, but don't dismiss the up and coming ESG emphasis. And today for the executives that may be aging out, uh, the leaders of tomorrow are in many cases millennial, sort of Robert's generation. So if you could just walk us through your fascinating journey from being a Stanford Earth scientist to an environmental consultant, to Koga, to Adamantine, to how you came up with the both of these things are true series and walk us kind of that whole career up from the start to now and tell us how it all came to be for you. Sure, thanks Mike and Robert, it's such a pleasure to be here. And the, the way you laid this out, Mike, is so important because uh, the, the place that oil and gas industry is today, really we create, we have both an existential threat, but also all of these disruptions create an unbelievable opportunity for the oil and gas industry to build bridges with the public, to mobilize its workforce in a way that generates excitement and pride and creativity. And um, I think I came to this perspective because my life is full of contradictions uh, embodied in this idea of both of these things are true. Things like I live in rural Boulder County, Colorado, perhaps the hippiest place on earth after Berkeley. And I love the oil and gas industry and I've devoted my career to its, uh, its success um, and ongoing um, relevance. So that all began back at Stanford uh, in, the, in the late 80s and early 90s. And I, uh, you know, like any good college student, I found myself uh, drizzling chocolate dyed red onto my clothes to lay down and protest the war for oil, um, which actually was quite a controversial thing to do at Stanford at the time. Um, and, and that was my start as an environmental activist. And I still feel and embody um, environmentalism in my soul. I live in the mountains, I take my solace uh, and refuge in, in nature. And um, as, I, as I went through my life, that's one thing that, that never changed. So I moved, you know, of course, where's a good environmentalist gonna move except to Boulder? So when I came here to start my career and, and do the things that people do as they grow up, I got married, I had kids, I started my environmental consulting career turned into running an office and then running a region and all those life realities and, and pressures set in. But my, my commitment to the environment never waned. Uh, but what changed is that I decided to be a person that would change my mind and change my mind often. And I still change my mind every day. In fact, hopefully I'll change my mind on something in this conversation. And so being an a environmental scientist and a geologist and being married to one also, I became really interested in this fracking controversy and dug in and really wanted to understand it and came to the conclusion that, uh, for example, that if you wanted to be worried about oil and gas, that was the wrong thing to be worried about. Um, I still feel that very strongly, still ruined many a dinner conversation uh, with that, uh, wanting to dig into that topic. But that, that's just one example. And so this journey of learning and, and, and critically thinking and being willing to be a contrarian, not for the sake of being a contrarian, but for evolving, for being on a continuous evolution, um, led me to thinking about oil and gas globally. In my worldview, living in Boulder, where I, my kids were in cloth diapers, I was making baby food, like the whole deal. Um, so thinking about oil and gas, I, I, I was, let's get off of it. We don't need it. We're done with it. And so I, I went on a journey. Do we need it? Actually, can we replace it? And that journey has led me to today. So 15 years later, heck yeah, we need it. Heck yeah, there's a long bridge. Do we need to... Um, be a part of the decarbonizing energy future? Absolutely, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that today. But that's what led me to Koga. I thought, 
the Colorado Oil and Gas Association is so important. Um, Colorado has a 150-year history of oil and gas. The demographics were changing. The location of drilling was changing and conflict, conflicting with a lot of new build, new residences. And I thought, I can be a bridge. Very naive. Learned a lot. Evolved a lot around na naivete as well. <laughs> and, but I, I spent those five years really wanting to transform how people from my mindset thought about oil and gas, but also about how the oil and gas industry engaged with the public. So um, I, if I started talking about five national precedent setting regulations, people would hit stop on this webinar, so we won't do that, but there, there's a lot of things we could talk about about how we as an industry engage differently. Did the controversy go away? No. In fact, I think the public has really reached a tipping point driven by political identity and demographics where more people than not think we don't need fossil fuels. More people than not think that oil and gas is a fuel of the past. So in my work today, the emphasis I put on is that, that the, the obligation is on us to lead, to transform, to build bridges, to communicate with the public, with investors, with regulators on their terms. And that has led to all the work I'm doing today and, and how I've come to view these disruptors that you mentioned, which is everything from expectation for an immediate energy transition to a pandemic, to oil price collapse, to rise of the millennial generation has all led me to think about, well, how, how do we use that to our advantage? Our, our industry has a 150 year history of entrepreneurship. When, um, when electric lights came in, we didn't just fold up and go home. We transitioned into selling fuel for the internal combustion engine. And, and we have morphed and evolved and we do this um, as part of our DNA and who we are. And, and because of political identity, we've gotten a little uh, combative and maybe not embracing the opportunity to reinvent, co-create the energy future um, and, and so that's what I'm really excited about. And the reason I've developed a passion for the millennial generation is that I used to like everyone. So I'm Generation X. You didn't even men mention Generation X. We're the forgotten generation. We're just sandwiched between you two relevant generations and nobody cares about, about us. And so I was as resentful as anyone about the millennials. But the now dominating population will soon dominate the electorate dominating economics, I thought I better get on board. I, I am not willing to be left behind. And so that then that transformation within me, again, once again, having to evolve, that will be a theme. Uh, once you embrace the millennial generation, you are on a, a fun, wild, creative ride. And the millennial generation is almost 40. So we're not talking about 21 year olds, that's generation Z. We're talking about a generation in their peak economic, political, civic relevance. So I'm, I'm betting my future on the millennial generation and that's why I'm spending so much time thinking about how they lead us into the future. So that's a great, that's a great description. And you know, you love millennials, I love millennials. So I thought if we're gonna talk about millennials, it'd really be important for us to have a millennial on the call. So Robert's on, he's in exactly that prime part of his career. And so Robert, take it from there. You know, what, what advice can Tisha give old guys like me and young guys like you? Yeah, I, I love that, we, that you went there so quickly, Tisha, with your comments and, and I'm with you. I love the enthusiasm and the passion of my generation. Um, I'm one of the oldest millennials out there. They began, I believe, in 1983. I was born in 1985. They've tried to divide us and say that the older millennials are not really indicative of the rest of the, the generation, and so we have a micro segment. But at, at any rate, today's, today's topic is all about generational transitions and energy. And so as we look at the energy landscape, most of these companies are still being run by boomers. Very few millennials are actually in positions of leadership within the C-suite. And, and that transition is going to occur. Boomers are going to age out. Millennials are the up and coming leaders of these companies 
within the next five years even, what message do you have to both groups? Robert, thanks for that. It's um, the first thing when, when things are, are challenging to our identity, um, our first reaction is always defensiveness. So I, I totally empathize with a generation of leaders who have literally written me, stop counting us out. We're still here. We have two decades ahead of us. Um, to which I would nicely like to say, please not two decades. Like that's a lot, that's a long time. Um, but the, I get that our first reaction is defensiveness. Like we're here, this is the way it's done. And so I wanna acknowledge that. And then it's incumbent upon each of us as a leader to embrace disruption. That is the theme of 2020. Um, it would have been the theme anyway, but now it's just the theme on steroids in every dimension. And so the way I like to talk about things that are threatening uh, in the industry, particularly to identity, is instead to compare it to a hurricane off the coast. So if there's a hurricane off the coast, as the oil and gas industry safety-minded, safety priority, risk managing, we don't ask if we believe or not believe that this is coming. We say, let's prepare our facilities. Let's prepare our operations. And thinking about the millennial generation in terms of data and influence and relevance is why I spent a lot of time writing about the, gen the generation in those terms. And um, in fact, your listeners can go to our website at energythinks.com and we have a millennial report that's fresh out that looks at data. So, so we wanna um, take this out of identity and into data. And, and once you recognize that not only are our millennial employees growing in relevance, but our investors are millennials, our, the permitting, um, whoever's doing permitting, the elected officials, these are all millennials. So now the idea that there's a generation of external stakeholders, our customers are millennials, then we really have to rethink how are we engaging with this generation? And in order to do that well, the best thing we can do is engage with our employees internally. So we can talk about this more as we go, but I like to make very specific suggestions, like any strategic planning room should have a relevant representative number of millennials at the table, period. As well as representative diverse perspectives of the exterior world as well and in, in your internal operations. So that's my um, message is the hurricane is coming, so let's prepare. Uh, you don't have to like it, uh, you don't even have to embrace it, but you have to manage risk. Now for millennials, um, what I'd like to say is thank you for your patience. You're not spectacular at it, but it's okay because your time has now arrived. Um, and what I think is really important for any of us who feel, who have collected some amount of resentment <laughs> at having to wait so long, is now's the time to really embark, to participate, to also be mindful that the disruption is affecting you and will affect you. Because as millennia, as we all move into our positions of leadership and power and relevance, then we want to hold on to the status quo. But now is the time to remember all the things, the change makers, not try to say I've arrived and I will maintain the status quo, but to be the change makers as we address racial equity and justice, a decarbonizing energy future a changing workforce. So that, that's my advice is you are arriving now, be dynamic, be creative. So there, there was a report, I believe it was done in 2017, released by Ernst & Young. Within, within that study and within those findings, it was quite telling as to how things were going. Generation Z, only 6% of them viewed oil and gas as appealing. 39% viewed it very, viewed the oil and gas industry as very unappealing. Millennials by perspective had a little bit more of a favorable view being 18% very appealing versus 23% very unappealing. Um, moreover, they started classifying fuels in terms of generations. So 71% of teens believed that renewable fuels were their fuel of their generation, uh, specifically solar and wind, and then believe that oil and gas is the fuel of their parents' generation with coal being the fuel of their grandparents' generation. 
what factors do you believe most attribute this directional sentiment to? That's such an interesting caricature, Robert, and I'm so glad you shared it because it does a few things. First, it anthropomorphizes fuels, right? Like we take carbon molecules um, or elect electrons and we make them good and evil, and now we make them old and dinosaurs and or, or modern and exciting. So that's so relevant and so important for uh, oil and gas leadership to contemplate and really think about evolving their thinking around because uh, one of the things that we do i don't need to tell your audience why um oil and gas is important and relevant and need to be here for the future this audience knows that what this audience has the opportunity to think about differently is that there is a public that has moved on the vast majority uh not the vast majority but a tipping point of the public including regulators elected officials investors think that oil and gas is a fuel of the past. The only way to address this is not to fight for our, our place, which is what we end up doing. We'll educate them. Educating them looks like an old school monopoly fighting to maintain. And what's an old school monopoly? A, it's, it's your dad's fuel, right? That's it. We're just fighting for the past. You, we cannot reinvent the future while we're fighting for the past. So the only option for us is to share the ambitions of the public and say, we hear you, we're interested in how you think about the energy future, we too want a clean energy future. We too care about the climate. We too care about decarbonization. And if those don't align with a company's culture or a leader's internal values, then they really need to take a look at if it's time to retire because the world is moving on. And only dynamic, changing, creative, relevant leaders are gonna have what it takes to meet the public with a shared ambition, look at their businesses and say, how do we co-create? How do we co-create this future with our public? And the, the last thing I'll say, Robert, that you didn't mention, but I would love your perspective on, is my observation is our millennial workforce is in constant conflict. Even if they're conservative and live in some place like Houston or Calgary, their peers think they work for an old industry. And today in the middle of the pandemic, when a third of them got laid off in March or furloughed indefinitely, their peers and even their parents are saying, why would you go back into that industry, the industry of the past? So they're, no matter how much they love and adore, their, their workplace. They're in this constant state of conflict. And the only way we can empower our millennial workforce to represent, to be ambassadors for our companies and for our industry is to help share a vision of an energy future that we're co-creating. Robert, Robert, what do you think? What's your experience around that? Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts. I actually, um, I published a recent article on Medium that hits on this topic a little bit. And it, and it was called, Millennials Have Developed a Superpower. And the premise of the entire article was predicated upon the fact that the millennials have been the unluckiest generation in the history of this country from an economic standpoint. We have faced unprecedented economic challenge. We currently own an unprecedented low amount of the wealth in this country. I believe it's somewhere around 7%. By comparison, a boomer at my age in his life, um, their generation owns somewhere in the ballpark of 15 or 20% of the, of the wealth in the country at my age. And so it's a, it's a very large scale issue that we face as a generation. That being said, it's caused us to be more thoughtful we don't have the testosterone puffing of our chest because we've been beaten down in many ways. We've been humbled. And so I actually witness the superpower of the millennial being that we are able to work across the aisle politically. Something that has not happened in a number of years or in over a decade, our, our legislature, Congress, political parties, Republicans, Democrats, have just retreated further and further into their own thinking. 
So that's the backdrop through which I view things. I have a lot of hope for the future of our country as a millennial because of our willingness and ability to work together. Um, I don't find as much adversary discussion in regards to I work in the oil and gas business. I was inducted in the Forbes as a lister in the Forbes 30 under 30 um, for energy and industry. Almost everyone else in that category is working in renewables, battery technology, uh, wind and solar. And they all kind of viewed me in a, in a weird light, at least initially, until we started talking. And then they realized, I do, I care about climate. I believe climate change is happening. I believe to not be alarmist, however, in that. And so um, the, the discussion's been wonderful. I, I think you're right. We need to have more ambassadors that are millennial in our industry speaking out, which brings me to my question to you. Why do you think a Zoomer or a millennial today would rather work for Tesla than Continental Resources or another wonderful example in the oil and gas business? Why should a young person want to work in this industry? It's such an important question because we have to create the industry that um, millennials and Generation Z now want to work in. And, and frankly, we, we haven't created that. So the, those who are in the industry and know our creativity are often second generation or have some special link to the oil and gas industry. I think the way we make our workplaces the place to, to, to be, to take your career is a couple of things. One, we have to have a public narrative about the future. And right now we spend a lot of our energy, uh, literally and figuratively, trying to articulate why we matter, educating the public. There's huge limitations that I've spent a lot of time writing about if people are interested on, on what we can do with education. It looks like we're fighting for the past. We have to articulate the future in a way that people wanna be a part of it and wanna create it. And we know, and most of the audience knows that we're the, we are the rocket engineers of the subsurface. And we are also the inventors of efficiency and decarbonization. And, and I argue um, publicly, frequently, that, that decarbonization happens much faster with us than without us. And in fact, I don't think it happens without the oil and gas industry. But how do we make that case that, that coming to work for the oil and gas industry is coming to work for the future, for innovation, for a cleaner planet, for raising standards of living around the world? So we have to do that. The second thing we have to do is make our places a business dynamic and interesting. And we, have an, uh, we just have the, the opportunity of a lifetime right now because the number of CEOs I've gotten to talk to in the last month who have said, I was opposed to telework, but now I see how efficient and effective our workforce is. One example, if we can change like that, we can also create shadow boards of millennials. We can create strategic initiatives about the energy future and include diverse, represent diverse representatives. We can create very novel engagement campaigns with our public. Ultimately, we have to change. We have to transform. We have to disrupt instead of be the disrupted. And then people will want to work for us. And our millennials will go tell their friends, I, we got a job here for you. And we're so creative and dynamic that we can figure out how to put your IT skills to work in our business. We can put your graphic design skills at work in our business. So I think it's the two, the two pieces. And, but I think we need deep transformation to reach the opportunity of today. It's historic. We should seize it. 2020 should be the year that every oil and gas company publicly traded or privately held has started a strategic initiative to articulate their role in the energy future. It should. That I, I love some of your points there and Robert's question, you know, how do we do this? How does my generation do this? And, and two lines that really jumped out at me is this, share ambitions and co-create. I've spent a fair amount of time on your website. I'm an avid reader of your regular email series. I would encourage the audience to get on your website and sign up for that. It's, it's free and, and there's a lot of insight there. But I saw some of the things at the company that, that you guys specialize in and their skills that 
historic leaders in the energy industry didn't really have to deal with. Our generation was about creating abundance. That was finding reserves and producing them. And, and now we're moving into this world of managing abundance instead of creating it. But with that comes some challenges. So I, I see things on your website like board strategy, navigating strategy, de-escalating conflict, energy access. This is a, a whole new set of challenges that we weren't really trained to do. But one of the things that really jumped out at me, and it's a big tagline you have on the site, was this concept of future proofing against rising social risk. So it's obviously something you know that's on your heart and your mind. Can you dive a little deeper into what that means and strategies you give companies to do that? Absolutely, Mike, thanks. The, the idea of future-proofing is also the idea of seizing opportunity. And some companies need to look at it one way and some the other. Most oil and gas companies are quite conservative by culture and the leadership is politically conservative. And I think that that has accidentally served as an impairment to a keen observation of the disruptions around us. And, um, and I don't think it has to, because going back to this metaphor of a hurricane off the coast, if we look at data, if we look at changes, we don't have to uh, send them through our political identity and, and have a reaction to whether climate change is or isn't happening. We can simply say, there's a, there's a plurality of people out there that think it is, and they include my regulators and my investors and my customers. I should, I should think about this. Um, and, and, and increasingly my employees as well. So the way we work with companies to think about future proofing is, is one of two ways. Either someone at a mid-level, like a senior level executive brings us in and says, I see the risk, I see the opportunity. And we spend a lot of time helping make the case up the chain to the executive, to the, to the executive team, then the C-suite, then the board. I would say that that is now a much shorter journey uh, these days than it was when I started five years ago because people feel there's an existential angst about all the climate concern and the traction that opposition has gotten even under the Trump administration. So that's one way we come in. The way that we actually get things done once we're in is every level of management, board, C-suite, executive team have to be bought in to the idea that we have to understand the ambitions of our key stakeholders, which includes investors and regulators and people that materially impact our ability to get our work done. We have to understand their ambitions and their interests, and this varies. It's totally different for a company with all operations in Oklahoma, for example, than a company with an international footprint, or certainly a company doing business in Colorado. We need to understand, and then we need to to really tie into the company's values and culture in a way that's authentic. Adam and Tim gets a lot of calls from companies that wants us to do essentially PR for them. And we don't do that. We will only work with companies that wanna be materially changed by their interaction with us because this is about evolution. We are, there are, we've all seen amazing campaigns, media campaigns, amazing ESG reports. They don't win one heart, one mind that's not already with us. And so we're really talking about deep transformation it has to be authentic, grounded in values. And then the culture work has to get started. And I've made the point and I can't make it too many times that at, at a very early stage in the strategic planning process, diverse voices have to come to the table. Some conversations external to the company, but many internal to the company, because we're not going to reinvent the future with the same five people that got us here today. We're gonna reinvent the future by reinventing <laughs> how we think, how we act, how we engage. So, um, so that's the process and the real, I'll just acknowledge the real challenge is, hey, we're a small midstream company. We do pipe, how are we a part of creating the energy future? And find an, an authentic answer to that. It does live, we've never failed, we can always find one with a company, but finding their authentic role in the future then buys them 30 years to operate. And the reason is every, for example, midstream company has to be able to answer the question, why should I let you build your pipeline? It will be here 30 years. 
we don't need fossil fuels today. And a company can't answer that if they cannot articulate their role in co-creating the energy future. So that's the heart and soul of our work. And maybe I should have gotten a therapist license along the way because every single person who engages in this work has to transform. We have to transform every day. I, I, you know, this, at this period, I, for example, am working on racial equity and justice, every company working on it all the time. I have to grow every single day to rise to the opportunity of this moment. And that's, that's what we do. That's the work we do. I love the plurality example on climate change. Different people have different opinions. If you ask people about climate change in a room, everybody flocks to the corners. And, and then shouts at each other across the room. But one of the issues with that is if you talk to my generation, they may discount that. But frankly, we don't, we're not going to live another 50 years. So if you talk to Robert's generation or younger generations, they have a different opinion because it, puts, it changes their risk profile in a time spectrum. So one of the questions that I will ask someone who discounts that or refuses to acknowledge that risk is, do your grandchildren agree with you on this issue? And it's like, listen to your grandchildren, see what their concerns are. And it ties right back to the points you made earlier on engaging and listening and understand that generation. But the, the fact is, they just view the risk differently because they're really the ones that are now saddled whatever whatever that risk profile may be. That's absolutely right. And really for us as individuals, depoliticizing this and just, I, I've found that people have a lot of freedom when I say, you don't have to believe in climate change. I'm not asking you to take on a religion of any kind. I'm asking you to care about what the public cares about. Um, to think about what the data tells you about what your stakeholders, your investors, your regulators care about. And so anything that can take us out of this environment into risk, into data, into some sort of assessment of how to manage that, then allows a space for us to start thinking about transformation. The, the other deep transformation is just our inherent desire to do it. I live in Boulder. I constantly get those things brought up that make me want to say, but you drove here, you know, those reactions that we want to have. And I also have to override my defensiveness to say, what's a way that creates a shared ambition? Let's look for that conversation. And usually if I say, um, my focus is on creating a decarbonized energy future. We have a totally different conversation about oil and gas. So Tisha, it, it seems impossible to discuss generational energy transitions without discussing climate. Um, as you probably know, Michael Schellenberger just released his new book, Apocalypse Never, on June 30th. I've just finished it. It's an absolutely wonderful book. And to be clear, Michael is not a climate denier. Um, similar to our guest here today, Tisha is a passionate environmentalist who also happens to be someone who involved in the oil and gas industry. So I think that makes you a very unique voice to speak on, the, on these specific questions. Um, first, have you had a chance to read the book yet? I haven't, but I know Michael Schellenberger well. He, found, he was one of the two founders of the Breakthrough Institute um, and I serve on their board of directors, and, the, and they also spoke, at, if you can believe this, at a COGA conference eight years ago. So haven't read the book, familiar with the work. So for our listeners and, and viewers here today, what are your thoughts regarding climate change versus climate alarmism? And you, can you quickly define that for, for our viewers today as well? Thanks for the question, and um, I'll, I'll share my personal views um, with this audience because it'll make it more fun and interesting. Um, at the same time, I'll say my personal feeling about climate is irrelevant to my work because the data tells me that the public cares, and so that means I care about it because I share ambitions with them. But my personal feelings about climate 
are that there are more important global priorities than climate change. And then my number one mobilizer is raising people out of poverty globally. If we want a, an empowered world where people have the potential to reach uh, their, the, the optimal living conditions, they can only do it with energy. So I'm a big believer in a high energy planet. I also sit on the board for the Energy for Growth Hub, which is all about energy at scale for jobs and developing economies. So for me, I, that's what I want. I, I, I wish we had the same amount of passionate energy around alleviating uh, energy poverty around the world and, and creating all of those amazing outcomes. So that said, I still think climate is a extraordinarily high global priority. I'm a geologist, I'm an environmental scientist, I'm, I buy the data. Uh, even though it's not my top priority, I want to do everything I can to be part of the solution. Because I work in this idea of both of these things are true, I can hold two potentially opposing priorities in my mind at the same time with the, uh, the uh, plan to address them. So that's how I think about that. Now, we all, I think we all know, particularly those who sit in the industry, that climate alarmism, discussing the climate crisis, these are communication tactics that fail because they give a sense of hopelessness. And they have, in, in fact, before we had the pandemic, there was a ton of press and studies around millennials and Gen Z being depressed and even suicidal over climate. This is not a constructive global process. So I have significant critiques of the environmental alarmism movement in all its forms. Um, but it turns out that it's irrelevant because frankly, they won. They won the conversation they are winning increasing influence and in the US where there's the possibility of a significant political blue wave this fall, we need to get on board with the, the conversation. And we cannot be credible critics of the environmental apocalypse conversation when we're not even at the table. Then it goes back to looking like defending territory. So the, the way I engage is that the burden is on us as an oil and gas industry to share the ambitions, to participate, and then we create space for navigating some of these conflicting priorities and saying, well, are we willing to give up this? Are we willing to take on that? Can we be focusing on mitigation and adaption? Can we have net zero or net negative oil production? But right now we don't really get to participate in those conversations. So that's my priority. Let's get at the table. Let's participate. Let's be part of the solution. And I keep most of my personal views about this now out of the conversation so that we can focus on getting, getting to the table and working on co-creating the energy future. So Tisha, the statement you just made, they won, that's a, that's a big statement. And what's, what's scary about that and I'm really glad you brought up the energy poverty because I know that's a passion of yours, it's a passion of mine. But one of the, the dangers of they won is that to alleviate global energy poverty, understanding that standards of living, education, all of this is tied to energy use, okay? Is that to solve energy poverty, you have to have affordable, reliable, energy access and in a, for example and i'm a big advocate of renewable energy but renewable energy can't do it all and you and i've had the conversation on cooking fuels for example and just how much of a difference it would make to humanity for a couple of billion people if they had clean cooking fuels which would involve for example natural gas but if we've lost this argument and we're not at the table, but we still got to get that message out there that there's some places that actually need fuel, like hot fuel to cook food, okay? Or affordable backup generation capacity in the electricity grid to keep the grid stable, reliable, and affordable. How do we change that narrative so we can get that topic back into the discussion? Because if we're not at the table, we can't have it. If we don't have it, we, we, we could actually, by losing, as you put it, they won, we could find ourselves with an energy system that doesn't work very well and it's not that affordable. So how do we change the narrative? 
I'm so glad you called me out on saying they won because for me, they won is empowering. They won means we can stop fighting to win, which is what we spend most of our time doing, fighting to win and fighting to educate. So they won for me when I, it actually happened in January of 2019, I was going to Calgary to give a talk and um, a, a tremendous pipeline overhaul legislation went in that basically shut the industry down in Canada. And this was still fresh. Now it's something that we, we know is a fact. And I thought giving my normal spiel about advocating for the industry as an industry ambassador is not gonna cut it. And so I dug in again to data. Where are we? Where are we on public opinion? Where are we on demographics driving future public opinion? And when I came to the conclusion that the public is going to think of us as a fuel of the past until we do something different and there and there is going to be a plurality that's opposed to us then i thought let's do things differently so for example in advocating for the role of natural gas which i think is mission critical globally the way that i can get a seat at the table and this is the way we did work through stanford's natural gas initiative mike that you and i collaborated on is to say decarbonization climate addressing climate is a top priority. Now, how do we do that realistically in a world where the reality of energy development is coal plus solar? And we could reduce emissions dramatically by changing that formula to natural gas plus solar. To get a seat at the table, I have to put climate first. And so that's what I think, and I think in the absence of a transformation of the oil and gas industry and the way we talk and think internationally, especially in this world of green stimulus, and re recreating the energy future, we have to articulate our shared alignment. And you can see that in the massive pivots that the European international oil and gas majors have made, which I, I do not view as a capitulation. I view as a very timely change to meet stakeholders, policymakers, where they are. And then you have room to say, if we share these ambitions, what's the best way to get there? Let's look at all the options and natural gas is, overwhelmingly relevant because it also is feedstock for fertilizer and feedstock for industrialization. Um, and, and if you can create the argument as Energy for Growth Hub does so effectively that developing economies that will be affected by climate need what? They need cement, road, infrastructure, they need jobs, they need prosperity. All these things are empowered literally by our products and our feedstock. So that's why I think it's liberating to acknowledge that public opinion has moved on. Now let's join them and let's lead into the future. So Tisha, being mindful of time, I'm gonna try to fit in one additional question before opening the floor to you for any of your closing comments, but um, cancel culture is, has come back, speaking generationally. Um, Michael Schellenberger, his, his story was canceled on Forbes, called On Behalf of Environmentalists. I apologize for the climate scare. Um, highly decorated filmmaker Michael Moore, he was canceled for Planet of the Humans on YouTube. Most recently, yesterday, Michael Schellenberger was canceled on Facebook. What is the role of social media in this discussion today? And do these social media outlets have a duty to silence their critics who want to have that seat at the table? It's such an important question. And I'm going through uh, my own journey in real time about this because the easy answer would be for me to talk about the importance of open and free speech and dialogue. That, that would be the easy answer. And it's an answer that our whole audience, will, will, it would resonate with. I am asking myself why our voices that have felt disempowered, now feeling empowered, using that to cancel, and what, where can we find a shared ambition in that? So I'm not done with this work. I, I'm reading and thinking about cancel culture right now. I've been asked to write, both of these things are true about it. But the answer people want from me is free speech, free dialogue. I actually think that's too easy. I'm more interested in saying, why are people resorting to cancel culture? It's a, it's a power grab. It's a power shift. And if we just defend our historic power structures, we're not evolving. So I don't have an answer right now. I have been the equivalent of canceled in the environmental movement in Colorado um, uh, to the, you know, to, to an extreme um, 
extreme uh, results. But but the, I don't want to I don't want to go to the easy place. So I think right now what we can all ask ourselves is how are power dynamics shifting? How can we find shared ambition in that shift? And how can we, as the people in power, frankly, and historically benefiting from the systems in place, how can we participate in building bridges, creating platforms, and modeling dialogue and free speech that makes us uncomfortable? So um, I'm, I'm in process. Fair enough. I love the candor. Thank you for that. Um, it, it, our time is running out together. Are there any closing comments that you would like to make before we follow up with our conclusion? Well, thank, thanks, Mike and Robert. And it's such a pleasure to be able to participate. If I left everyone with one thought, it would be that the oil and gas industry has the opportunity of all of our lifetimes to seize the multiple levels of disruption underway, take that empty space of concern and disorientation and articulate how we are going to create the energy future in collaboration, in relationship with the public and with diverse perspectives and with a generation that's coming into power. Our legacy as the current leaders of the industry must be to empower the disruption that's underway, to launch it into its success, and then to step back and support its ongoing evolution. And that's what I've committed myself to, as uncomfortable as that is. Do I wanna to lead to the charge? Do I wanna be out front with the flag? Yes, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to create a space for disruption and leadership and support its launch. So that's, that's where I would like to leave it. That's our episode for today. Thanks to the OU Energy Institute, Michael and Robert for inviting me to have this dialogue with them. I'd like to know what you think about what you've heard today. Please visit our podcast website at energythinks.com podcast and let me know. You can subscribe to Energy Thinks on iTunes and the other major podcast platforms. If what you like what you're hearing, please take a moment and give us a rating. Thanks for listening to Energy Thinks. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health. <laughs>